It's FAQ NYC Offsite, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, our executive producer, and in this episode, you'll be hearing from guest host Richard Kim, editor-in-chief of the city and previously the executive editor of The Nation, where he worked with both its features editor, Kyra, who's now a journalist at WNYC, and host of season three of its Blind Spot podcast, the season being called The Plague in the Shadows. That's a six-part deep dive, along with lead reporter and Nation deputy editor Lizzie Ratner, into the early years of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, focused on overlooked populations including intravenous drug users, incarcerated people, and the pediatric patients and staff at Harlem Hospital. Blind Spot, Richard was telling me, emerged in part from a story idea that began at the nation, and in some sense on Hart Island, New York's potter's field for unknown, unclaimed, or indigent people. Let's jump right in. Thank you, Harry, for uh, giving me your podcast. I um, promise not to to break it. Um, <laughs> and thank you, Lizzie and Kai, for joining us. Um, it is a really special moment to um, be reunited with you here. Thank you, Richard, for having us on. Yeah, thank you, Richard. This feels like a reunion. It's really wonderful for the three of us to be together. All right, so before we get to the reunion part of this, I, I just wanted to maybe like, you know, ask you why you folks did this now, right? And just to sort of set a little bit of, of context, we are, you know, over 40 years into the AIDS epidemic. You know, deaths since 1996 or seven have, however, radically declined in the, in the United States thanks to new therapies that are available. Um, you know, transmission um, here in the U.S. Has, has dropped dramatically and continues to drop as PrEP. That's um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, a pill you can take to help prevent the spread of AIDS, that's contributed to the drop of, of transmission. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, okay, so AIDS may not be over, but it's it's managed, at least here and in, in other wealthy nations. What do you say to that? And 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 wh- why, given that, like, should we go and look back at this at this history now? Well, there, there there is a very particular set of inquiry that started with Lizzie that was our provocation, and I'll let Lizzie talk about that. But the bigger picture of what you're asking about there, Richard, is I say a couple of things. One, all that progress is wonderful. There, uh, this is far from an epidemic that's over. So HIV is a, is a roadmap of inequity in the United States. It has been since it showed up and it is remains so today. And um, and if you look at what remains of the epidemic today, it, it is a perfect map of the inequity today. It's concentrated in the South um, amongst uh, poor people of color, poor Black women and young Black gay men and people who have access to the healthcare system. Yeah, HIV is in the background and people who don't, it is not. Uh, and that that reality was true in 1981, and it's true in 2024. And so, part of what we're doing is, is reminding us of that. You know, I mean, the, the I, I like to say, and maybe I'm overstating it, but science has done its job on HIV mm. AIDS. Um, you know, there's not much less science to do. There's a pill. If everybody in the world who is HIV positive had access to that pill, there would never be another HIV infection, and there would never be another HIV death. Um, but Everybody in the world doesn't have access to that pill. Um, and 
we can see the people who don't have access to it reflect a lot of things that people that those people don't have access to. So that's the that's the why of the big picture. Um, but also, uh, Lizzie just had a bunch of questions. Um, so, so Lizzie, to, to those questions, I think we were in a different office many years ago. I mean, could mm-hmm. it have been 10 years ago or, or so? I, or? So I have a weirdly obsessive memory for dates. And I want to say it was late 2017 or maybe January 2018. To, okay, um, okay. So something like that. So, you know, I guess that is pushing six years ago. All right. So 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 a long time ago, I, I remember you, you, you coming into my office and... and talking about SCB-1. Um, mm. What, who is SCB-1? Yeah, that's a, I remember that moment well because it changed so much for me. Um, so SCB-1 stands for Special Case Baby 1. And Special Case Baby 1 is a child who is buried on Heart Island, Hart Island, as Harry mentioned in the opening, is New York City's Potter's Field. It's public cemetery where the unclaimed, the unidentified, sometimes the indigent are buried. And it turns out it's this giant cemetery off the coast of the Bronx. As many as a million people were buried there. And all the graves on the island are pretty much mass graves. But um, in, in around 2009, I found out about this one grave um, that was alleged at the time to be the only grave where a single person was buried. We know that's not the case now, but at the time, that is what I had heard. And I had heard that this grave had this unusual marker that says SC-B1, which stands for Special Case Baby 1, and that that designation, in turn, stood for or sort of um, was the marker letting people know that this was the grave of the first child to have died of AIDS in New York City. That was sort of the legend that had grown up around this child. Do you know what year that was? Oh, yes, 1985, sorry, 1985. And that is on the marker as well. And when I found out about this child, um, it blew my mind a little bit. For one thing, I had heard about Ryan White, the absolutely heroic child, Um, teenager who in 1985 was diagnosed or in 84 was diagnosed with HIV and then was kicked out of school, basically not allowed to attend because of his status. And he fought it and he was valiant and he died in 1990. But that was pretty much the only child I think I'd heard of who had HIV. In my mind, it was a disease that had absolutely decimated communities of gay men. But you know, the idea that it had killed other children or other people, that I didn't so much know. And so I was curious, wait, this child died and was buried on Hart Island? I grew up in New York City. I was alive in 1985. How come I didn't hear about this? Who is this kid? What was going on? And since I knew that Hart Island was a place that was often um, where people who had been cast to the margins of society were then sort of once again cast to the margins in burial. I thought, okay, the, the story of this child must be pretty heavy. And I'm guessing it's going to tell us something bigger about the era in which this child died. Something about the city, about inequality, um, something about this connection between this disease, HIV and AIDS, and uh, the sort of inequity of the city at the time. And so that was the beginning of my search and quest. And Kai jumped along and more than jumped along. He like invited me on board and encouraged this quest. And what's interesting is that while we have yet to find SCB-1 and maybe never will, we found 
a story about New York City, about HIV and AIDS that is so much vaster, so much richer, so much more troubling, and in ways, I hate to use the word inspiring, but it is filled with people who are so much more inspiring than I ever could have imagined. So so let's let's talk about that sort of journey for, for you folks, because I think both of you bring some real personal stakes to this as well. Lizzie, as a, as a New Yorker and someone who grew up here and, you know, as a child, you know, saw, saw this happening around you. Kai, as, as you say in the podcast, as a gay man who has been reporting on HIV AIDS for um, a couple decades um, now, um, you know, Lizzie, when you when you put this together, like, how does your memory of, of what New York was like in the 80s and 90s inform and surprise like what did you did you did you discover new things in in doing this and and kai from just your your perspective as a reporter like what did you learn in in putting this together that you might have been surprised about or didn't know um you know sort of coming into this because i i will just also say for me as someone and i should disclose here that you know my my partner howard is an advisor on this podcast not the reason why harry uh booked, booked you folks um and um you know i also have some experience you know reporting on on hiv aids and yet i i found in every episode many surprising nuggets of information and history and voices that i had not uh, heard before but i just wanted to hear from you folks like what was the most sort of surprising element of putting this together you know i i for me this has involved going back and having conversations with some people I've known for decades uh, and having the kinds of conversations with them that I nonetheless have never had with them, uh, particularly some of the Black gay men who are a generation older than me, who were the first responders to this epidemic. And um, and I've covered their work. I've done some activism with them in my life. Um, I've been friends with them. Uh, and I've never really genuinely talked to them about the scars they carry mm. and the relationships they had with one another and with one another who are alive and with those who are gone. Um, and just, I was just reminded how present tense this is. I mean, getting back to why now also, like, there are millions of people for whom this is very present tense, you know, um, where it is still something that is a part of their emotional and mental lives every day because they lived through, this is not ancient history, you know, these are middle-aged people. Um, and um, uh, and they did these incredible heroic things uh, that there's just so much to learn from, their ability to respond and how and why they did. Uh, and so that has been a both challenging and really special and illuminating part of the process for me is, is these new kinds of conversations that I've been able to have. Oh. Uh, what about you, Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason I really wanted to do this is that my childhood still remains pretty vivid for me. And growing up as a kid who was definitely conscious in the 80s, which was a really rough and painful time. I mean, it gets kind of glorified now as the gritty go-go era of New York when things were real and authentic, and maybe that was true. Um, but there was a lot of obvious pain. And even as a child of absolute privilege growing up in this city, you couldn't be even a half-conscious person and not see that, um, not see that there was this gaping inequality along 
you know, racist lines. You know, this was the era when homelessness was becoming a real issue in the city. And there were vast tracts of the city which were rubble and where people were living in clearly inadequate housing. You could just walk down the street and there'd be no windows. And and as a kid, you're kind of like, what's going on? I don't, I'm not living in this situation, but this doesn't feel right. And so I, I wasn't surprised by some of the stories I heard confirming the level of pain and inequality. But what I was surprised by was the way in which you can see um, that HIV and AIDS, that crisis emerged specifically in poor Black and Puerto Rican communities, very much as a result of the political and economic collapse of the late 60s and early 70s and into the 80s. And, and you can kind of see these conditions being created that would then enable this virus to take hold. Mm -hmm. Specifically, you know, I'm speaking in big generalities right now, but specifically if you look to Harlem, if you look to the South Bronx, if you look to the Lower East Side and East Village, Central Brooklyn, you know, you can pr practically like see the red lines glowing around the neighborhoods. And um, and these were the same communities that when the economy crashed in the late 60s and 70s, you know, they were working class communities, city deindustrializes, jobs disappear, you know, a burgeoning heroin economy really takes hold. Heroin, it turns out, and injection drug use are the perfect vehicles through which to transmit AIDS, a, you know, fluid-borne, blood-borne illness. Um, and then on top of that, you have the city just disinvesting, divesting from these neighborhoods, closing clinics, closing methadone clinics, closing hospitals. And so these neighborhoods are completely unprepared for what hits. And then in the 80s, all that you have coming in are really these private entities trying to patch together some kind of solution. So the degree to which you could see this connection between the kind of sickness of the body politic and the sicknesses that were then kind of literally inhabiting people's bodies, that stunned me. Mm. Um, and the second thing I guess I would say is when I conceived or when I thought about SCB1, I really thought about it as this tragic story. And I still do. I mean, there is tragedy there. Mm. No question. But I thought of it purely in terms of victim and a person who is, you know, in a community that was acted upon by the city. And that is, again, that is true. People were victimized. But what surprised me was the degree to which you had individual people and sometimes communities and community groups stepping into the void created by the government, left by the government, and saying, no, 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 we are not going to be left out. We are not going to be let to die. Okay, we are being neglected, but we are going to do whatever we can within our power to make sure that people live, to make sure they get treatment, to prevent people from dying alone. And, and that really is what actually is now, I think, the beating part of the podcast. And you see that in episode after episode, um, whether it's in the first episode, this woman, Valerie Reyes Jimenez, who finds out she's HIV positive, she's from the Lower East Side, and she's like, no, 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 I am not going to be silenced here. I'm going to come out, I'm going to say I'm going to HIV positive, say I'm an HIV positive woman, and I'm going to demand yeah. services for me in my community. Um, Can we, um, you know, one of the other places of, of as you so beautifully put it, like pain in this city, but also like surprising care and tenderness, right? W which is Harlem Hospital, which is which is where you you take blind spot, I think, in episode two. And there's a voice in that episode that I had never heard of. There are several voices actually in that episode I had never heard of before. One of which is Dr. Haggerty, um, who is a, who's just a, a really amazing character. 
And the other is uh, someone named Victor Reyes, who was a boarder, one might say, at, at, at Harlem Hospital. What, what does that mean, um, Kai? Like, who, who, who is a boarder and who is, who is Dr. Haggerty? I mean, the, the idea of border babies, B-O-A-R-D-E-R, so boarding at the hospital, is actually something that I had heard of, but I had not understood in the detail, uh, even after covering this epidemic for 20-some-odd years, that we discovered once we looked at Harlem Hospital. Um, this was a direct consequence of the drug war. There were infants who were born to mothers uh, that the state decided had to be separated from their their families. Um, and there's enormous amounts of politics to discuss there. Um, but we know we have we have we have more of a conversation now than we had then about it at least. This idea of saying, okay, we're gonna separate these infants from their mothers because they have taken drugs. And so in this case, these are infants who were born HIV positive to mothers who had been HIV positive, and they lived and died their entire lives on the ward of Harlem Hospital, on the pediatric ward of Harlem Hospital. And it's such a perfect example of what Lizzie was talking about, of this epidemic is a story of individuals and communities stepping in where institutions fail and where institutions are designed to fail. And so Harlem Hospital had been through years and years and years of divestment, um, and it did not have the resources to respond to the AIDS epidemic. Um, and so the nurses on that ward, under the leadership of Dr. Haggerty, who was in charge of that ward, they literally just created a home for these infants, you know. And like, and for me, one of the things, uh, one of my learnings, is, and it's it's very useful for me at this time in our, our our history, is like, what is what is radical interaction? Like, what is a what is a what is a radical investment of my time? What is a radical way mm. to engage politically? And it's easy to think about that for some at the level that is visible to us with uh, the kind of stuff that ACT UP did, which was crucial and important um, for changing the narrative. But it's also these individual nurses who just said, you know what, I'm gonna, we're going to turn this hospital into basically a palliative ward for these infants um, that society has discarded. And we're, gonna, we're just not going to let them be discarded and we'll just make that our, our contribution to history. And it's just such, uh, it's such an inspiring, for me at this point in life, an inspiring way to think about how I might be able to live differently than I have lived. I, I think there's a, just a really um, powerful moment in that episode where the nurses talk about a actually burying, right? Hol holding a funeral yeah. for a four-year-old, I believe, yeah. who had, who had yeah. lived and died his whole life in that ward, had, had, never, had never been outside of Harlem Hospital in, in his whole life. Yeah. And um, it just it, it it was like a gut punch when it, like who paid for that funeral when that was when that was sort of yeah. re revealed. Can you? Yeah. I, I don't know if it, was it you, Lizzie, that was doing that interview. Can you can you talk about like what? Yeah. 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 So basically, so it's interesting. Um, one of the doctors we interview is this wonderful man named Stephen Nicholas, and he actually found out early on that there were children from the hospital, probably in the early, early 80s, who sometimes would end up going to Hard Island, because be, being buried on Hard Island, because there were no parents around, they were they were dead or their, their kids had been taken from them. And so the child would become a ward of the state. And so then these nurses would organize, they would do two things. They would either raise money to bury the kids, or some nurses actually donated their own plots. 
And then they would hold a funeral at Bailey's funeral home across the street from the hospital. What's notable about that is really until probably 1987, a lot of funeral homes wouldn't bury people who died of AIDS. Um, Particularly so in Harlem. Um, yeah, there was there was so much fear, so much stigma um, that you couldn't even in death, people wouldn't touch you. Um, and so they this place, Bailey's, became sort of the funeral home um, of choice for this hospital. And as ha- Margaret Haggerty, Dr. Haggerty says in our episode, you know, she realizes that when this child, James, dies just before he turns four, she says, you know, I realize that we were the child's family. And so we had to organize the funeral and and they did. And they, the thing is they did that for so many children. And as time went on and um, the hospital learned to sort of provide at least some treatment for people with HIV, not to cure the HIV or even stem it, but to at least sort of keep people alive through the Mm -hmm. infections, you did have more parents who were surviving. Mm. Um, And then the community continued to be a community, but one where parents were able to be more involved. And they did remarkable things like um, the parents and the kids would all go to camp together over the summer. Or... Uh, when the children would come in for these immunoglobulin sort of antibody infusions, um, the parents would all bring meals. And all the parents brought so many meals that they created a cookbook um, of all these special meals that parents would bring. And, you know, I don't want to totally glorify things. It was still fundamentally terrible what was happening. But nonetheless, within this space of horror and great need at a hospital which had been radically defunded and they didn't even have Robitussin because there were so few funds. It's the state hospital. Harlem Hospital was a a city city, hospital. City hospital. And so you have community. You have people step up and they create family and community out of out of the chaos and emptiness. Um, And that was remarkable and kind of, you know, really inspiring to hear. And as Kai said, I now keep thinking, okay, in this moment of so much need, you know, what do I do? What can I do? Because it's not okay. There are people who step up in these moments. Was it was it hard to find Dr. Haggerty and and, and some of these other, you know, the nurses from that ward? I mean, like, these were people who... um, I mean, Dr. Haggerty's case w- was in her 80s, I believe, when you when you yeah. spoke to her. And she she has since passed, and um, she was one of the first people that Lizzie and I went to talk to, actually, um, uh, out in her house in Queens. Um, and um, I mean, Lizzie's a fabulous reporter, so um, we were able to find a lot of people. <laughs> um, but um, I think what is most notable, um, and yeah. I don't know if you'd speak for yourself on this, Lizzie, but I think what was most notable was less finding them than when we would find them. Mm-hmm. I mean, really to a person, you it was like you'd poke them and it was just, you had opened a floodgate. Um, and this is getting back to like where it's just so present tense for so many people still that lived this history. Um, they were like, oh, no one has asked me this, um, one. And two, let me tell you everything in great detail. Um, because, and it just, it really felt like you were talking to people who were talking about things that happened yesterday. And I'd say, you know, pretty much to a person, everyone cried, which was mm. actually kind of horrible, um, you know, to witness because at least for me, I went in as a reporter being fascinated and thinking there was something meaningful to explore. But as Kaya said so eloquently throughout this, this was real for people. It is real. It is raw. And I think because um, 
we as a society haven't fully reckoned with this. So many people just moved on that there's this scab, to use a cliche, um, that's just kind of formed over this part of people's lives. But, But the wound is deep. The wound is still really deep. And people went through a lot of trauma. It, un, and unnamed and uncelebrated. You right. know, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, there's so much, there's a lot of this epidemic's history that has not been told. Um, but particularly the stories that we're telling here and the communities that we're talking to here, these are things that that just literally, people never ask them to say, hey, you know, we think about, there's a, people, I, I've had a lot of conversations where uh, about comparisons to COVID. Um, and one of the big things that is very, very different is there was no essential worker of the HIV epidemic. These people were not celebrated as heroes in real time. They were actually treated as pariahs and they did the work anyway. And and I think something else that comes across is that, especially in that first wave, in the first years of the early 80s, um, they were not trained for No. I mean, I think repeatedly the healthcare worker, I mean, later generations, you have them people who become HIV specialists. They, you know, they, they enter that vocation um, on purpose and go through med school or nursing school with, with that in mind. You know, I think there's a pediatrician in the podcast that says, like, I didn't come here to take care of dying children. Like, that is not a thing that I want to do. And yet there he was on the 17th floor of of Carmel Hospital doing that for for years. Right. Yeah. He stayed his whole life, 25 or, you know, his whole professional life and interestingly returned during covid um, as a mm. volunteer worker. So you have we've we've talked to a number of doctors whose professional lives have been bookended by these two epidemics or pandemics. Well, let's, let's talk yeah. about one of the doctors who whose life has also been bookended um by the by this and who I imagine was not a difficult <laughs> person to track down at all. Um, which which is Dr. Uh, Tony Fauci, who many years before he became um, you know, one of our leading doctors about COVID and talking about COVID had his start in public health, working on HIV, AIDS. Can you just briefly describe his role? And then I have a very specific question about like your interaction with him, which I found um, compelling. Let me let me put it that way. Uh, which he, so he's the head of the. He was of course the head of NIH. Um, he was one of the first scientists to respond to HIV as a consequence. He has been on the front line since the beginning. He's been debating what. Uh, went right and wrong since the beginning as a consequence. Uh, I think Lizzie and I, and I think on the team in general, we actually have, we're, I, we don't have consensus on what we think about uh, what Tony Fauci told us. Oh, all right. Well, let's let's get into that. Let's... Uh, Lizzie interviewed Tony Fauci. So like, you, 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 yeah. No, now I'm her. curious to hear what Kai's going to say too. So yeah. Well, so I, you know, I feel like one of the premises of the podcast, I think you just, you say this very explicitly in episode one is like, we are going over this history to see what other decisions might have been made, right? Um, Did did the epidemic have to look this way? Where were some places where blind spots or, um, you know, willful decisions made the epidemic look the way way it does? And um, you do this sort of gentle, sort of tough exchange with with both Dr. Fauci and with with, um, Larry Altman, who was the yeah. chief uh, medical science reporter at the New York Times at that point about, you know, word choices they made, um, scientific choices they made that shaped the epidemic as a gay male, as a white gay male, really, disease. So, like, were you, Lizzie, were you were you satisfied with their answers? How, how did you find um, their, they, they responded to, the, to that kind of line of questioning? Uh, yeah, well, it's funny. When I asked 
Dr. Fauci about uh, the fact that, you know, there were women getting HIV from the very beginning, and we didn't hear much about that. There were Black men and Black women getting HIV um, from the very beginning, drug users. He was like, oh, I know where you're going with this line of questioning. He was like, immediately jumped on me kindly. I mean, he was he was really fun to talk to in an interview, I have to say, and, and very generous with his time. But um, but he sort of tried to like cut me off at the pass there. And, you know, he was sort of like, you know, I don't understand. I saw where this was. I wrote an article early on. And he did, in fact, write an article early on saying that this would be that HIV, which was then they didn't know about it. So AIDS would be transmitted broadly. And so he was like, I think it just there was a communications breakdown you know, with your average doctor all over the country, and they just didn't really see this. And I'm as curious as you are as to what happened. He also said that kind of things were moving really quickly. It took a while to figure out what was happening. He makes an analogy to COVID also. Right, exactly. Like like COVID, things evolved very, very rapidly. Exactly. And obviously they evolved much more rapidly in COVID because we had almost 40 more years of expertise. Okay, and I totally grant that. And I have sympathy for kind of the fog of early medical war or whatever you want to call it. Nevertheless, um, I think if you looked at things like the... um, morbidity and mortality weekly report, which is sort of, um, you know, kind of the in-flight newsletter or something of the CDC. Um, If you went out, you know, went to actual hospitals, talked to doctors, you could see where this was heading. Um, And you actually had by the late, mid, late 80s, you had women um, going to the CDC and saying, we're being left out. You had doctors saying, women are getting sick and are being left out. Um, And you had the CDC kind of actively refusing to to recognize the degree to which um, people, in addition to gay men and often gay white men, were getting sick. Um, And so I do think there was just a long time misogyny and willed blindness here. Um, And also, I think the fact that many of the women who were getting sick um, were, for instance, in this specific case, were low-income women of color. I think that just didn't matter too much. Um, So I I think there was a sort of willful blind spot um, that we have to acknowledge. But I have sympathy. Do you see it that way also, Kai? I, I mean, I, yeah, so the short answer is yes. I think we're, we're talking a matter of degree here in our dis- disagreements. Yeah. Uh, uh, I I think I have more sympathy for the fog of not knowing what you don't know. Um, certainly early on, and it's inexcusable as long as it took to acknowledge that women were um, getting AIDS and to change the definition. That's inexcusable. And as we see uh, very well charts uh, in our episode on that subject, it's, I don't think there's any there's anything to debate there at this point, but, um, but what, but this early, the way in which the early narrative set in, that it was only this particular group, not just white gay men, white gay men in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City, and primarily New York City, like that, that was a very specific group of human beings that were affected. And I think what I see in that for me is, um, the ways in which our institutions, both whether it was the CDC or mainstream journalism, were set up to create self-reinforcing narratives and self-reinforcing sets of facts. Um, And I think that you could have fed just about any set of facts 
Um, in this case, we're talking about race and gender uh, and class, but I think it would have been true if we were talking about like auto, auto reviews, um, the ways in which those institutions were set up to self to reinforce the beliefs they already had and not prompt you to look beyond those beliefs. Um, I think that has certainly in journalism changed meaningfully um, uh, over the course of my career. Um, and so, you know, to take the Larry Altman example, you know, I, I asked him why, why didn't, you know, he was a doctor who was seeing the cases that we're talking about himself, um, but could not call them and was thinking in real time, this looks an awful lot like they're saying goes what those gay men have. But he couldn't make the step as a reporter of saying, well, wait a minute, I'm going to ask questions about that because that's just not what reporting was yeah. in his idea. Um, and um, that is not a, to me, I have sympathy, like that's not a critique of him uh, as much as it is a critique of the way we understood these institutions and the way they were set up at the time. Well, I mean, in many in many ways, sort of the history you tell is of people forcing themselves into the room, right, where That's decisions right. are made, right? And, yeah. and, you know, we should note that, like, even at that time in New York, there there were no out gay men in, in city right. politics, right? Yeah, <laughs> much less yeah. at the New York Times, right? right. Um, uh, never mind women, African-Americans, like, you know, all, right. all of that was not represented in the um, sort of elite rooms where, where, where this these decisions were made until your subjects force themselves into that conversation. I just, I want to, you know, ask about one of those like crazy aha moments, right? In the podcast where you you talk about in one year, there is a 45% spike in the number of women formerly diagnosed with, with AIDS. Um, and, you know, someone might look at that stat and be like, whoa, a lot of women like contracted AIDS that year. That's not what happened. Um, what? What actually happened there, Lizzie? Yeah, so it's a it's a really good question, and it's going to take a minute to kind of unravel, mm -hmm. so bear with me. But as I said, women were really unrecognized, underrecognized by the government and medical establishment as people who are part of the HIV and AIDS crisis. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. But what this meant is that the literal definition of AIDS. So there's obviously there's HIV, which is the virus. Um, and there's AIDS, which is sort of a syndrome that happens when the virus is really, really advanced. Um, and your immune system begins to collapse, and you get really sick. So um, basically, by the late 1980s, you had women who were being diagnosed with HIV. But AIDS itself, that that sort of moment when people got really sick, the definition of what AIDS was, um, and the symptoms that caused that that were AIDS, um, that was predicated entirely, pretty much, on symptoms that were being seen in gay men um, and men, really, um, on in male bodies, um, and um, and also in slightly more affluent people. Um, and so, because women didn't fit the criteria for AIDS, they weren't actually getting diagnosed with AIDS. So they could have HIV. They could be incredibly sick with, say, a bunch of gynecological symptoms like pelvic inflammatory disease and terrible uh, other things, and um, and yet not qualify for an AIDS diagnosis. And that, and that had meant, consequences. And that had serious consequences. It meant that you couldn't qualify for a bunch of government benefits like housing vouchers and unemployment um, it meant and 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 
housing and things like that. Um, and then that could put women, if they couldn't work, at risk of losing their children. So at the moment, these women are literally dying and as sick as they could be. They had to worry about health benefits and keeping their children and getting a house and all sorts of things like that. So the consequences were huge. Also, a lot of women just like, they didn't think they could get this illness because none of all these things they were experiencing, they they weren't what they were being told was AIDS. Um and so there was this massive fight beginning in the late 80s through 1993, where a bunch of activists led by women and often led by women with HIV and AIDS, um, they demanded that the federal government change the definition of AIDS so that it included symptoms that were more expansive, symptoms that were being experienced by women, also that were being experienced by drug users. Um, and they were victorious. Uh, victorious is probably the wrong word. I mean, it's hard to describe something so basic and essential as a victory. But they um, they managed to convince the center the Centers for Disease Control to change the definition of AIDS. They also managed to convince the Social Security Administration to update its definition of AIDS, so that women that when they were getting you know as sick as they were going to get when they were almost dying could be counted as having AIDS and. Um, and would get these benefits. And so what happened in 1993, the definition of changes. So all these women who formerly definitely had AIDS, but just weren't meeting the definition for it, all of a sudden, boom, they get sort of uh, wrapped up in the definition. They qualify for the definition. And so that's why the definition all of a sudden, sorry, that's why the number of cases just jump 40, 45%. So to translate, what that means is before that moment, 45, you know, all these women that 45% had AIDS, but just weren't being counted as having AIDS. Um, I have one more question for, for both of you. So, you know, you're researching and reporting this, I imagine, during COVID, right? Um, through that and and recording it, you know, in, in the last few years and... Um, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I think as I was also experiencing that pandemic... Um, you know, it, it struck me that some of this history really informs that moment, and um, and some of the things like we have learned as a as a city, as a society, as um, activists have 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 shaped our response. Did you find those residences too? And what 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 sort of struck out um, stuck out for you there? I have to say, I mean, the more I did it, the more I found not the resonances, but the differences, you know, um, in that one, as I said before, the, 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 the COVID was a play, it was a time in which so there were so many, um, everybody felt like they had a stake in this. That was absolutely not true, um, mm -hmm. throughout the eighties for both the people affected by HIV and the people responding to it. It was an isolating experience, um, in which he retreated as a pariah. Um, no one was banging with pots out the window on behalf of anybody with HIV at any point in this epidemic, actually, to, to this day. Um, and uh, when you talk to people who lived through that time, that's the first thing they'll say to me about um, the differences with COVID. Um, uh, and then the similarities, uh, unfortunately, are... Uh, that there are lessons we appear to not have learned. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, as Lizzie said so eloquently, this is a so this was a social disease. HIV was and is a social disease. Uh, there um, and um, all of the inequities that we see in HIV were repeated in COVID. Um, 
uh, and around race and gender, um, and who got it and who died from it and who had access to care and who didn't. Um, and we just did that again. Um, and I think we have seen something similar in the post-COVID years of um, those of us who, when we started, when the, when the epidemic got manageable for most of us and we could figure out how to like get the masks out when we needed to and stay home when we needed that to, those who could not do that, the epidemic remained unmanageable. Um, if you had to go to work, uh, the epidemic remained unmanageable. Um, if you had uh, pre-existing conditions, um, the epidemic remained. So there's just, unfortunately, um, when I look at the comparisons between COVID and HIV, uh, it, it is one of the heart. It's one of the darker parts mm. of this story to me. Lizzie, what about you? Yeah, I think I would just add that as I was learning about HIV, I had this constant sense of frustration because I felt like the activists then were telling us what the problems were then and are now. And if we had listened, maybe we could have avoided some little margin of the pain of COVID. So what I mean specifically is you had activists then, you had people then, people with AIDS who were saying, it is inequality that is exacerbating this. It is stigma that is exacerbating this. Um, it is racism. And in fact, into the uh, the episode that just went live, which is beautiful, um, which is about really focuses on Harlem and the Black community's response, um, we hear from this poet, Craig Harris, who storms a uh, public health meeting, the stage at a public health meeting, or not storms, but he, he sort of claims the stage of public it. health. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, and he basically says, you know, <clears throat> you all are missing the picture. Racism and heterosexism and classism are all affecting this illness. They are shaping it and they are leaving people out. How dare you? And that was 40 years ago almost. And I feel like if we had paid more attention, we, whoever we are, you know, uh, we as a community society had paid more attention to the lessons of HIV, to, to the lessons that people were shouting at us, maybe we would have been a little bit more prepared for um how a for how covid would strike with so much inequity um and so i i think for me this period um of hiv and aids that we focus on is filled with lessons like that um that just keep echoing through the decades and that i am consistently um both horrified by and in awe of the fact that people understood with a sharpness that is mind-blowing what the solutions needed to be, um, how what we needed to see, what we needed to do. And so it's a touchstone for me. You know, I, I can look back at that moment and say, all right, here's how I should behave in the present. The podcast is called Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Uh, episode four. Um, is called uh, respectability in the politics of AIDS. Did I get that right? Or, or respectability um, politics and and the AIDS epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. Um, I, I I encourage all FAQ listeners uh, to uh, listen to FAQ again, but also to, uh, to to tune in to this this wonderful wonderful podcast that um, two people that I'm very honored to call friends, um, Lizzie Ratner and Kai Wright, um, have brought into this world. Thank, Thank you, you for Richard. coming. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Richard. It's so great to talk to you. Total pleasure. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is headquartered at the city. 
a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. You can find it all, freely available to everyone, at thecity.nyc. And chip in to support that work, if you'd like, at thecity.nyc slash give. The podcast receives support from PNT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side, with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. And from Bouldering Project Brooklyn, which has world-class bouldering terrain, a heated yoga studio, a fully equipped fitness center, a co-working space, and a dedicated youth climbing room that hosts after-school programming and birthday parties. Go to brooklynboulderingproject.com to find out more. FAQNYC is an affiliate of the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where our co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars inaugural fellows. And we're an affiliate of the Flaming Hydra Newsletter, a collection of 60 writers and artists, including me, Harry Siegel, delivering a cooperatively owned new newsletter to your inbox that you'll actually want to open. See more and subscribe at flaminghydra.com. Our host this episode was Richard Kim, editor-in-chief of the city. I'm our executive producer, Harry Siegel, and our engineer is Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guests from The Plague in the Shadows, the new season of the Blind Spot podcast, Kai Wright of WNYC, and Lizzie Ratner of The Nation. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. Hey, thank you both for a terrific conversation. That was fascinating to uh, be a fly on the wall for. I'm excited to listen to the podcast. Thank you. I'm guilty not having started yet. Kai, I do want to It's a lot you, of podcasts, Harry. Oh, Lord. And I don't listen to any of them. Don't tell. <laughs> but I did want to ask you, Kai, what, what you thought of Fauci in this conversation. And as you're thinking about the connections between then and, and now, or more recently, and these these two social epidemics. What do I think of Fauci? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're, you're reacting, Kai, like every AIDS activist I know from ACT UP. Like, like Peter, like all of them have that same reaction, which is like, they were on the other side of the barricade from him for so long. And then there's this sort of weird respect and understanding and also tension and antagonism that kind of remains. Well, because this is a, because this is a man who has been willing to listen. Like, that's the thing is like Tony Fauci has from the beginning of AIDS through COVID been somebody who has been at the center of power for public health. And has been willing to to say when I am wrong and I need to change and to change. Um, And so I think he's earned a lot of people's respect as a consequence of that ability to change. At the same time, as a consequence of having been at the center of power for so long, he has been on the wrong side of a lot of decisions, too. Um, And... uh, And I think both things are true. And I think it's one of those things with this epidemic, with our politics, with life in general, we struggle with the word and, um, and both and constructions. And I think with Tony Fauci, you really have to embrace the word and. You can't do 40 years of, uh, of public health from the top of the federal government and not have some good, some bad, and some ugly involved. And just one more thing I wanted to ask. 
There was that Times piece outing Ed Koch, sort of, after his death. Or outing Ed Koch is complicated, but he never spoke of himself as a gay man publicly. And with these communities that are doing, that we're doing, and that that often continue to, what the government is not, and we're not putting aside common resources for, I am just wondering, and we never get to run these things back, if things could have played out differently, if we had a New York like the one we have now, where, you know, and Koch would have been the highest profile gay politician, not just in New York City, but in America, if he had come out. And that's not all that long ago. So I, I think about that. And, and if the public recognition could have been different, if the, the conversation doctors had and the public had could have been different, if we could have bridged that gap sooner. It is certainly the case that as Richard said, the history of this epidemic is people who standing up and saying, actually, here I am, and you have to see me, you have to deal with me, you have to respond to me, and in doing so, changing their own relationship to um, the facts and what the epidemic needs to be. And um, had Ed Koch been able to own his relationship to the gay community at that time, would he have made different choices sooner? Um, would he have been uh, a global leader in uh, changing the conversation and the policy? Uh, we'll never know, you know, <laughs> uh, we'll never know. But um, certainly it's the case that uh, many who did come out, who were many, there were many gay men who were not out at the start of this epidemic and the epidemic prompted them to change their relationship to their sexuality and as a consequence they changed history so maybe Ed Koch would have been one of them you know um Randy Schultz the the the, the journalist and and early AIDS historian makes a, a a really fascinating point in in his book on the band plan on which is that Koch wasn't just like in the closet he actually was very actively throughout his political career trying to distance himself from the gay community and that included to like not fund gay organizations during the epidemic and and Schultz points to San Francisco where which Diane Feinstein was the was the mayor of at at the time straight woman who also was like sort of a center liberal person and that city which was one tenth the size of New York City had a budget for AIDS ten times larger than than New York um, so you know there are choices um, people made yeah. and that were, were were shaped by you know. The, the the other decisions they had they had made prior to that. Yeah. Um, I have to run, guys. This is amazing. Thank you, Richard. Can we get together in real life? Yes, please. 